But Paul says we're to walk by faith, not by sight, which is such a risky proposition, right? When we walk by faith, we begin to think and have to dwell in the things we can't control. And, and, and it is uh, a test every day to understand what that even means. And then we struggle with the idea when we, we get presented this idea that, that we're to have faith in the Lord, that we still are called to have assurance in that faith, to have confidence in that. And I think that's the greatest desire any of us have. Even an unbeliever gathers some type of an assurance in how they think, that they, uh, even if they think and trust that there is a creator and a God, a, 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 a being beyond our understanding that did create everything. That there, there's some level of assent to believing that. But yet we're called to a deeper understanding rather than just, just thinking there's a God who is allowing me to now live on my own. But we're called to, to know and to submit our lives to our Creator, to God. And as Hebrews 6 says, that we not only know that He is, but we know that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And we see those, those uh, imperatives in the Scriptures that represent what faith is, that we seek Him, or we know Him, or we cry out to Him, uh, or we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. These are all uh, just other ideas of what it means to have faith in the Lord. But it's never uh, an idea of the quality of our faith, how much greater my faith is than yours, or, or how my faith is growing. But it's about the object of faith, right? It's who we're putting our faith in. That's why Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can declare this mountain to move into the sea and he's talking about if your faith is in the right place, if it is in who God is, who is all-powerful, who is all-wise, and who is all-loving, then you will be blessed. And so it's not about the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith. But we want to grow in this faith. We want to, uh, to progress. And I think this is what the Beatitudes lay out for us. And it, and it really centers around this idea of the kingdom of God. If, if there's one theme that stretches, that threads throughout the scriptures, it's God's kingdom. His eternal kingdom and His uh, uh, kingdom here on earth. And so we know that there's a kingdom that we read about in the past. And as God tries to establish His kingdom, we, we know that there's a kingdom now that exists uh, in, the, in the realm of His people, in, in our hearts, and in the realm of His church, that we don't follow the rule of this system. We follow the rule of our King. Uh, and we do it as we dwell in peace among men. But then there is a future kingdom. We know that there's a future kingdom coming. And this is all real to us, not because we have seen it or see it or have seen what we are going to see, but because we believe, we have faith in these realities. And even uh, in First John, one of my favorite passages, it talks about the benefits of assurance of our faith is the hope that it gives us. 
And he says that, you know, children, we know that we're children of God, but we don't know what we will be, but we know when we see Him, we'll be like Him, for we'll see Him just as He is. And this is speaking about His return. When the kingdom of God comes on this earth and we see Christ, we're going to be immediately transformed to our heavenly state, our uh, Christ-like bodies, our hope, our faith is going to be fulfilled to where Paul doesn't have to say anymore, we don't walk by sight because then there's no longer a need for faith because guess what? We will see what we have been looking for. We will see what we have been promised. We will see what our uh, uh, assurance was based on. And that is the fulfillment of Christ's return. But this faith brings those realities into the present so that we're able to uh, benefit from the, the blessings of our life in Christ. And this is what the Beatitudes are presenting to us. Uh, the, the core idea there is blessed are those. Blessed are you. And we'll, we'll walk through those qualities that Christ lays out that bring that joy. And when we talk about blessing, we're talking about um, favor or, or happiness in life and how it's translated. And so it really comes down to the question that we have to ask ourselves moment by moment every day. Is there, does the presence of God's kingdom you know, through which His love has been established, dwell within my heart? And do I dwell in His kingdom? Do I walk according to these truths so that I am not tripped up by the things that I see? That I am not controlled by circumstances that stir up emotions that flow from my flesh? Or am I under control of the Spirit of God that simply is the, the filling of Christ's character within us. And if you want to think about what that is, you want to know what the fruit of that is, you just go to the basic scriptures in Galatians 5.22. We learned them as kids, and I think we dismiss them as elemental truths like we're children. But no, this is the heart of who we are as Christians. If we want to have... Uh, an impact for the glory of Christ and, and walk in Him, then we need to think about the fruits of the Spirit daily, constantly. The commandment of God, as we saw, was to love God and to love others. And we see the fruit of the Spirit is foundationed on God's love. We have love, joy, peace. That love that, that transforms our hearts through the, the work of the gospel and all its elements through our justification, our sanctification, and our future hope, this love brings us a joy and a peace that is not affected by circumstances around me. It stirs within me then a love for others. Because guess what? I'm now patient with others. I'm kind to others. I'm gentle. And then in my nature towards God, I'm good. I'm righteous. I'm walking in His ways. I'm loving Him and I'm loving others and I'm faithful and, I'm, and I live under self-control. This And then what does it say right after that? Who knows that passage? Verse 23. Against such what? There is no law. 
Okay, you are so honoring God and so fulfilling the law that you don't even have to worry now about examining, okay, am I, you know, am I serving, am I, or, or, uh, am I obedient, or am I doing good things, or accommodating ourselves by saying, uh, I do this and I do that. The most tragic reality in all of scriptures are the men in Matthew 7, verse 21, right? Lord, Lord, these men came uh, assuming that they were okay, that they had somewhat, you know, passed the test. They were going to fly through this judgment that we, that we see in that passage. And they say, Lord, Lord, you know, we, we did all these things. We, we cast out demons, we healed many, we prophesied in your name. And what does he say? Depart from me. Without hesitation. He, he doesn't have to kind of weigh it out and you know, consider their offense. He knew right away that their heart was promoting their works and not the work of Christ and what he's done. And this is the work of the gospel, the fruit of the Spirit. And so we need to uh, know and understand that, that, that those qualities of the Christian life are to fill us with the joy and the peace, the, the love that brings blessing. So that when we ask ourselves, you know, how are you doing? Are you answering based on all the good and bad that's going on in your life? Or do you answer based on the realities of who we are as children of God? Not the, not the circumstances, the sight things that we are, are affected by, but those things we cling to by faith that bring us that assurance and that bring us that hope. And so I think when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, the, Christ's point in all that, the theme in all of it, other than just the establishment of His kingdom, is assurance. Assurance. Are you uh, a, a, a kingdom dweller? Are you a servant of God? Is God your king? And uh, one thing we have to understand, He's contrasting an attitude about religion and about uh, faith that was really centered in on pharisaical attitudes and actions. He's confronting these attitudes these Pharisees had that, that established their righteousness based on uh, what could be seen. Their outward expressions. And they uh, were the hypocrites that Paul talks about in Romans 3 who had... The, the, the oracles of God, the commandments, and they were called to teach others, but they didn't teach themselves. And so they had laid out a deception in their own hearts and in the de- deception among their people that the way you get to the kingdom is really through works, uh, through uh, the outward expression of your faith without having the inner... Uh, transformation that the gospel brings. And I'm not advocating, you know, faithlessness in our life that we're not to, to uh, carry out and work out our salvation through obedience and through faithfulness. But it is a result of the inner transformation. And I think that's what Christ lays out here. And He really brings it about in terms of our happiness, our joy, our uh, contentment 
in life, this day-to-day consistent joy that we ought to have that is established and rooted in the love of God. And I, and I love that passage in Philippians 2.12 that I referenced when Paul says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work in you. Our confidence is in nothing else but God because He's the one that did the work. And oh yeah, in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. If you want to examine, is there joy in my life, contentment or not? Just look at your heart. What are you complaining about? What do you grumble about? I'm not talking about simply what we complain about to other people. Because sometimes we welcome that, you know. We, we, we want, sometimes we love to hear people complaining because it makes us feel like, I got it better than they do, man. Um, I, I need to be encouraged. Or we love to complain to others because we love to justify, you know, our own struggles. Because we think that our situation, our struggles are not common to man. Which Paul says that no temptation is overtaking you such as is common to man. You're not walking through anything that's more unique than anyone else to where you can justify why you have a right to complain. Because when we complain, we simply are accusing God that He doesn't know or He's powerless really to do anything about our situation. Or worse yet, and I'm going to teach on this in a couple weeks, uh, with you guys in five, six weeks. Worse yet, we don't believe he cares. We think he, he's, he, he observes, he sees, and he even thinks, if you would just do this, I mean, you would, you'd, you'd solve your issues. But, you know, I don't care. We, we actually think that sometimes. And that's what I think the writer of Hebrews means when he says that we, uh, we believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He will care for us. He will bring about His purposes for our goodness if we seek Him, if we believe Him, if we trust Him, if we have faith in Him. So we have to guard our hearts. And I'm not talking about presenting a a, a pretentious attitude of being fake and pretending nothing's wrong in life. I'm talking about dwelling in the depths of belief and understanding that everything is okay. It's, it's not going to fall apart. You have nothing to complain about. And we see Christ brings this full front in, in the Beatitudes that we look at. So let, let's look at that. First thing I, I think it's uh, good to note, turn to Matthew 5. Let's, um, and, and it begins in verse 3. We know Christ is teaching really one of His first sermons right out of the gate and he uh, is gathered his disciples and he opens his mouth it says and he and he and he's bringing out this sermon and he's really the best preacher to ever to be seen and how he lays out even the sermon of the mountain as you uh, structure things we can model and how we teach and how we preach but I love the structure of the Beatitudes because I do think it's, it's important that we see them in a progressive way. That we're beginning at the baseline understanding of what it means to submit to God and submit to Him through the Gospel. As we understand these realities and to see that as we uh, are affected by these realities, we're progressing in the depth of what's going on 
in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, and then how that begins to then outwardly produce righteousness. So in our hearts and minds, understanding that, that because we're blinded by sin and we love ourselves, and as we're transformed, we're enabled then to love God. Uh, we're forgiven of our sins reconciled to Him. We now have peace with Him. Now we can see Him as He is and therefore love Him as we're commanded to. And, and, and that love is measured by everything else that we set aside. Jesus says, if you, you say you love Me and you do not hate your mother and father and your brother and sister and your children, yet even your own life, you cannot be My disciple. And so everything else when we uh, are, when these realities are revealed to us that humble us, that cause us to love Him, everything else pales in comparison. And, and it removes the distraction of those things that trip us up. Because nothing ever is as we perceive it. We're always let down by things that we cling to that bring us joy and hope outside of the Lord. But we see this structure, I think, that is that is easy to notice in the the way the Beatitudes are laid out in verses 3 through 12. And they bring about realities. In the inner being, it stirs up hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we'll talk about what that is. And then ultimately, in the culmination of Peacemaker, it brings persecution in our life. We, We are opposed to everything in this world and everything is opposed to us. And it doesn't mean we, we necessarily will inflict, be inflicted in direct persecution. Uh, it, it, it certainly is a reality uh, that we could face. Some face it even now. Many have faced it in the, in the past and many will face it in the future. But it simply means we, we live in opposition to in the kingdom around us because of the kingdom we dwell in. But what we see... Uh, in the first blessings are these uh, really is speaking to the state of mind and thoughts towards ourselves. And what happens when we're confronted with the gospel? Uh, And and the first we see is uh, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And the effect that those realities have on us stir up this hunger, this insatiable desire that we have to grow in righteousness comes from this inner work. Uh, and it's a, a, just a newfound view of who God is and, and, and how we view ourselves. Uh, we see that in 1 John when, when we, we go through the series of tests that we walk through for assurance, the same idea and that is that we need to have right belief about Christ, who is eternal, who is the one who created and holds all things together, and in Him all things will be fulfilled, and He will one day reign over us. Uh, he came and dwelt in the flesh, taking on our sin, which was necessary, suffering but yet now has, through His resurrection, has been uh, placed in His seat of honor where He deserves to be and always has been. 
So we believe the right things about Christ, but then we believe the right things about our sin. Right? If we say that we are in the light, yet we walk in the darkness, then we are calling God a liar. If we say that we have no sin, God is a liar. But if we confess our sins, right? If we confess that we're sinners, then, then God is faithful and righteous to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so, we, we, when confronted with the gospel, we now have this state of mind and understanding towards ourselves. And, and the first state of mind that, that uh, Christ speaks to is this attitude of humility. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So the first steps towards humility is having the right knowledge of ourself, right? A person who is poor in spirit has the right attitude about his sin. Okay, we understand that we walk in darkness, that we're not in the light apart from Christ. And when we have that understanding, we have the right view and knowledge of Christ. Romans 1.16 Through 18 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But man, uh, the, the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is us. This is who we are. This is who we were. Uh, And this is what we're reminded of in Ephesians 2. That we are poor in spirit. So Jesus is not speaking here. We're, We're tempted to go down the line when we hear the word poor. We're thinking of material poverty. Physical poverty. But Christ is speaking beyond that. Speaking to the spiritual realm. So what does it mean to be spiritually poor? Uh, it gives us a clear understanding uh, of true physical poverty. Um, when we think of physical poverty, when we think when we're in need materially, or we see someone who is in need materially or physically uh, is destitute financially, it gives us a clearer understanding of what it means to be spiritually uh, poor or to have that spiritual condition. The Greek word that we translate as poor in this is uh, uh, tokos, and it describes an emphatic state of poverty. It speaks of someone that is so desperate that they're cowing, cowering like a beggar. So we're talking about, we're not talking about someone who's struggling to make ends meet month to month. Some of you young people in here today who are in school and trying to work and parents are trying to do the responsible thing and, and, and give you more responsibility, you may think you're poor. You may think you can't, you don't have enough money to go out and get a Starbucks or go with your friends to eat lunch or even as adults. We've been in those places and times that we are month to month. That if something were to change in our income or in an unforeseen 
expense, we're on thin ice. And so we, we may think that we're really struggling financially and that we may be poor, especially if we're tempted to look to others around us. But this is not what Jesus saw. This is not who we are spiritually. We're not you know, trying to make it month to month. We're not trying to make ends meet with our spiritual lives. Or we're, we just have to put in a little bit more effort. I might have to take a second job. Do a little bit more, read my Bible more, submit to prayer more, or uh, serve others more. And then God will bring that blessing, that favor that I desire. But this is not what Christ is talking about. That word means that we are beggars. We cower like beggars. And when a beggar uh, would be seen in the streets in this day and time, he was considered a a lower class. He was considered... as kind of a scourge, an anomaly, or an exception in community. And even though poverty was rampant, to be a beggar means that you had uh, no provision for any needs, for the next meal, for shelter, for clothing. You were dependent upon the benevolence of those around you. And you couldn't even, and the shame was so real the shame that was forced on them and the shame that was felt, that they couldn't even look up to those around them. And and, and in fact, it was an expectation that that there was to be no eye-to-eye contact. And so this is someone who is desperate, on, on the streets, exposed to the elements, with no hope of any relief, any permanent relief. Their relief was dependent upon the benevolence of those who were passing by. And this is what Christ is speaking about. It's a, uh, an, an issue that there is nothing in us spiritually that can bring any value or any substance or any provision in light of what we need as beggars. So Jesus says that that uh, beggars in spirit, it's another way to say it, the desperate in spirit, the poor in spirit, are happy. Right? There's supposed to be joy when we think about being desperate spiritually. Because we are, have been humbled by the realities of our spiritual condition, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. That there's nothing that we can boast in that we are at the hands of a benevolent God. And apart from His mercy, we would be left in destitution. So spiritually, we're empty, we're poor, we're helpless. There's no redemptive value in our, uh, in our minds and in our hearts that would allow us to purchase our way to heaven. But that's how we think, right? Because that's the source of our pride is that the essence of who we are thinks that God has to accept us. That He sees some redemptive quality in us, right? I mean, you see redemptive quality in yourself, right? I know you do. Uh, I see redemptive quality in, in many of you. Not all of you, but many of you. Um, I'm not looking at anybody, so don't. 
you naturally make eye contact. And I don't want you to think I'm talking about you. Uh, yeah, move on. But this is the source of our rebellion, our, our pride in how we view ourselves. We don't, we, and I think that when you have conversations with, with, with folks and individuals whom you're trying to encourage to be converted or to be conformed to Christ, this is the issue that you got to overcome. And it's not something that they welcome, right? It's not something we welcome. We resist the idea that, that I am worth nothing. But I think even when we talk about the depths of doctrine and, and the sovereignty of God, because if we did not believe in a sovereign God who, by His grace, uh, is electing and choosing then we believe there's some type of redeeming quality in us that dictates whom God chooses. And therefore, there is then, the issue of all of sin and false short of the glory of God is really at risk because at some level, I'm better than if someone else, if I believe in someone else doesn't, it, clearly it reflects a quality within me, right? Something that, that was worth redeeming. But that's not... The, the truth, we are poor in spirit. We are beggars before God. We are dead in our sin. We have nothing to bring before God. And we all find ourselves in this situation. Uh, therefore, there's no distinction among men. that we, If we come in with any level of pride thinking that I'm better, or if I aspire someone because I think they're better, and I'm envious, or I'm jealous, or I, I want to kind of butter up to them, then you're acting in foolishness because uh, there's no distinction. All of sin and fall glory of the glory, glory of God. So we come, as God does, to love each and every person in who they are. But we know that Christ suffered and died, not because God's love accepts everyone, but because God's holiness rejects everyone. He's perfect. He's holy. He cannot accept. So therefore... He had to die. So it's, it's a foolish notion to think that if we have no sin, if we don't believe this about ourselves, then we can't reconcile why Christ had to die. Paul says this, that if righteousness comes through the law in Galatians 2, then Christ died for nothing. Okay, if we weren't spiritually depraved and spiritually impoverished and beggars spiritually then why did Christ have to suffer and die? If there's any redeeming value in our spiritual life that God has to accept and therefore uh, welcome us into His kingdom, then Christ's death was foolish. It was vanity. It was for nothing. And we can't accept that. We can't believe that. We have to accept the reality. As Jeremiah 17.9 says, that the heart is deceitfully wicked, desperately sick, who can know it? We, we can't trust ourselves. But God knows the heart. And so He desires uh, to expose this. We see this in the parable in Luke 18 of the rich young ruler that you know well that this man was rich materially uh, in a literal sense. He was a wealthy man. But he thought he was rich spiritually as well. And he kind of tied the two together in a sense. He was self-sufficient. He didn't need the Lord. But it's interesting. He asked the question, 
gain, wanting to gain what we want, right? Assurance. He asked the, uh, Christ, the great teacher, you know, how can I know, you know, that I have eternal life? And Christ, in His wisdom, confronts him and exposes the idols of his heart. He, uh, he says, you know the commandments. And he says, yeah, I've kept all those. He, he wasn't spiritually poor. He wasn't poor in spirit. He, he was self-sufficient. And then Christ exposes him for his love of money. That he, I mean, he gave him the opportunity. Look, you, you, we can settle it right now. If you just go sell everything and give it to the poor and follow me, you, you don't have to doubt anymore. Who would not jump on that opportunity? What a great offer. And the question is, would you accept that offer? I mean, we, we sit in, in our seats now and say, oh, God, what a fool. What a fool. But I bet we have denied that offer many times. Day to day we deny that offer. When we are to take up our cross, set aside what we want and follow Christ. Every day we do that. Because we think that we're self-sufficient. And Christ is calling us to a poverty, to a level of understanding of our, of our need. That it brings a joy, a blessing. Because... He will not fail to meet that need and bring us into His kingdom through Christ. So I'm going to have to finish there. Um, and by, and the, the frequency in which I'll have opportunity to teach, we might finish this by the end of the year. Um, but I do want to come back next time and get through all these Beatitudes. And then we may move into some other areas of, of, of perspectives of what faith is. What it means to believe. Things that you're familiar with, things you know, but I just want to bring it in in a a life that's encouraging to all of us. But three things I want to encourage you with on this, uh, the the ways that we can reflect and think uh, in in humility and acknowledging these spiritual realities, the destitution that we're in apart from Christ. First, in your prayer life. When you pray, do you approach God with this attitude? Are are you like the beggar in the street? Do you come laying out expectations, needs, uh, even attitudes of God? I mean, come on. I'm still dealing with this. And and I, I really would like for you to do this. And we come expecting. Um, entitled is the word. Or do we come simply cowering, lowering our eyes, hands out, just beseeching the Lord, please, give me what I need. He knows what we need. He cares for us and will provide what we need. We simply come to Him as beggars. So are we uh, considering um, those material needs when we pray or do we consider the spiritual needs and how we ought to be praying. Uh, he, he, he provides for us, right? In Matthew 6, he says, you know, why worry? You know, you got, I'm going to take care of you. you, you your basic needs, food, shelter, clothing. But seek the kingdom. This is what Jesus is saying. Seek the kingdom. And, and He will provide all these things for you. So when you pray... We pray as worshipers. We, we pray as uh, beggars. 
We boast in Christ. and We put no confidence in the flesh, as Philippians 3 teaches us. So when, does this affect our prayer life? Secondly, uh, do you complain? I talked about this a moment ago. When we understand this, this position that we're in, what is it that we could ever complain about? I don't know if there's anything more irritating than if you've ever helped a beggar or someone in need. And it's, we have pity. We, we certainly do. We, we're merciful. And we know we can't do everything. Jesus says the poor you'll always have with you. But when you uh, try to address and relate to someone who is in need and they uh, bring about this attitude of what they expect from us and they're not happy with what we can do, there's nothing more offensive than to think, what? I mean, I'm giving you something. Of course, I'd love to give you more, but you're going to complain about this? Well, this is who we are. When we as beggars come before the Lord and we, uh, whether in our prayer as we're communing with God, have the nerve to complain, but we do this constantly throughout the day when anything doesn't go the way we want it to go or someone doesn't treat me the way I want to be treated or whatever it might be. You stub your toe. Uh, You uh, face some form of adversity. Are you prone to complain? Are you prone to whine? Or can you uh, humble yourself to the realities that, that I deserve worse? I deserve more in terms of my judgment. Uh, Stuart Scott says it this way, that every day that I wake up and I'm not burning in hell, that's a good day. That, that's, that is a reason not to complain. And so we have to live in those realities. And do we complain? Or do we work out our salvation? Do we uh, abide in Him, continue in Christ, walk in faith, in His love, with a joy and a peace that cannot be affected by anything around me that would cause me to grumble or dispute? So are we beggars? Or You, you know the term, beggars cannot be choosers, right? We sit back thinking, we, we, I have a choice in this, right? It's my life. And if I don't get what I want, then can I turn it back in or do I have a right to complain? No, beggars cannot be choosers. And we see that in, in Philippians 2. And then, uh, and then the other attitude that this brings out, the other response, is that will we always be thankful? When we complain it certainly reflects that we're not thankful for who we are, what we are, but most of all, who Christ is. We know that everything that we have, we have received from God. And James 1 clearly states out that God is the Father of lights. He only gives us good things. The things which we suffer in this material world have been corrupted and affected by sin. And that's not on God. That's on you and me. We are in living in a reality that, is, that God did not intend in regards to what the state of being was like in the garden. But through disobedience that has been uh, the effects transferred to us, the condemnation, our nature 
it produces death. And it's death that we're struggling against. Whether it be death brought about through failing health, our own lives, or just the, the death that curses everything. Uh, our cars, our homes, our relationships, the effects that it has. I, I get frustrated by little things like I spend two hours cleaning my car and man, this is just the fulfillment after that. It's just, you love getting in your car. You just want to drive because you're in a clean car. Two days later, it's trashed again. Why? I mean, it really is frustrating. That's just the effects of sin. I know that's really, really uh, uh, immature to think about. But, yeah, right, that's, that's what I complain about. I don't know about y'all. But we, we see just th- there is a perpetual struggle that is we're not going to be uh, separated from until the full redemption of, of our lives. But we are already in the kingdom. We already dwell in God's love that, that should produce a joy and the peace. And, and, and it's in this that enables us to love one another, to relate to one another, to care about one another. And this is what progresses to us being peacemakers. And it's not something that has been cordoned off for certain people. It's for all of us. This is who we are. We're called to be conformed to Christ. And I don't care what your personality is or what you think your gifting is. This is the mandate upon you and what you are desiring to be. And if you are in Christ, it's what you are becoming. And so you need to see this. And it begins with humbling yourself and finding joy and peace in who we are uh, in our condition before God. Next week, we'll look, well, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at mourning and meekness and what that means and how it stirs up the hunger within us. We'll move through. Any thoughts, questions, comments, complaints? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I was testing you. Uh, well, let me pray for us.